Hope Church. So I wanted to uh, pick up where we left off last week because we finished um, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, this great sermon that Jesus gives that is so incredibly powerful for our lives if we don't just read the words and say, that's nice, but if we strive to actually apply and you know each section what Jesus has for us and, and how he instructs us to live, if we seek to apply that, to apply that consistently, to apply it firmly, I mean, there's no doubt that we will grow to be like Jesus. There is also no doubt that that's going to be a difficult path. But I would just propose to you this morning that, you know, you're going to take a difficult path in life no matter what. You know, you, and you can do that difficult path with Jesus or, or without Jesus. And the types of difficulties will be um, different based on which path you take. But the path of sin, though it has um, some moments of you know, good feeling, and the promise, usually the illusion, but the promise of more of those feelings, which sometimes do happen, um, that that set of, of that way, that path, um, is a different sort of difficulties. But where does it end up? It ultimately results... In destruction, um, but the way of Jesus has its own set of difficulties. It requires humility. It requires sacrifice. It requires, you know, putting away our own pride and our own desires. It's not an easy path, and you'll endure hard things and hardships of life. It's not an easy path, and we're not told to try to figure out. What's easy for our lives? We're not told to try to figure out what's comfortable for our lives. We're told to follow Jesus. So let's read Matthew chapter 7. And I want to pick up at verse 24 when Jesus says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, And the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now, what's interesting there, again, is you have two houses built. And you have... Storms come down on both houses. The house being built isn't in question. Your house is going to be built. Storms coming, that's not in question. Storms in life will come. And ultimately, God's judgment comes. Talk about an ultimate storm. (laughs) Really the true perfect storm. We're talking about meteorology, this perfect storm. Actually, the perfect storm is the judgment of God because it's perfect in holiness and in righteousness and in love, but it is perfect. <clears throat> so the only difference is what the house is built on, the foundation. Either the shifting sand or the solid rock. So the shifting sand is you know, our own ideas, all the ideas that this world has of what is right and good. 
are what should be pursued. And the rock is the teachings, Jesus and his teachings. Summarize it that way, Jesus and his teachings. They go together. And that's a lot of problem for, you know, people want Jesus, but not his teachings. But that's a different Jesus. It's a theoretical Jesus. It's a, it's a Jesus that just lets anything go and slide. It's not Jesus according to his own words. Because the teachings of Jesus himself are impactful and they're, they're deliberate. We put it that way. They are clear. And they are not compromising. Jesus does not give, you know, just suggestions for how he wants his followers to live life. He gives commands. And so everything is the same, again, except for the foundation. But I think we could argue that it's easier, at least on the front end, to build that house on the sand because you're just, you're building it with the materials that you want to build with, what you have available to you, what you feel is good. And you can build that house however you want it to look. But when we're built on the foundation of Jesus, now we have to use the sort of materials in our life that he's pleased with. The hay and the stubble and those things that later in the scripture it says, you know, will we'll burn up in the judgment that won't pass the test. Like, we're not striving to build with those sorts of things. We're trying to use, you know, quality Materials because we're built on a precious foundation. And so we want to build, again, according to the, that's the teachings of Jesus, as we build on that, we're building with the right things in terms of striving to build with a purity of heart and mind, you know, a clean conscience before God. That we're trying to, to remove, you know, hatred and, and lust and pride from our lives. So we can build in a way that is ultimately pleasing to God. But again, those storms are going to come. But will your house stand? And if it's built on Jesus, it's going to stand. Verse 28, excuse me, verse 28. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. They saw something different in the teachings of Jesus because it was with power, with authority. It was with a, you know, again, it's commanding. He's not just saying, here's some ideas that you may want to consider and pick and choose what you like and, you know, and whatever works for you. You, know, you hear that in a lot of messages. Hey, I've said a lot of things today. Whatever works for you, you, know, you take and you, you know, do with. But Jesus doesn't have to do that because you know, he doesn't have any sort of doubt about what he's saying. He doesn't doubt the power and the goodness for the lives that he is speaking to if they will apply what he says. And when, when teachers, preachers, or whoever is, you know, they're using their own words, there has to be some doubt of whether this is, you know, really good for people or not. Uh, Claire was listening to a TED Talk uh, by the guy who, uh, wrote the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And he talked about, um, he talked about writing that book when he was, you know, 21 years old. 
And, you know, I'm very, you know, this is what it is, you know, and everything. And then, you know, having to come to the realization, you know, he's like, we don't like to admit that we're wrong. I mean, not talking about little things like, you know, I picked the wrong, you know, menu item. You know, the, the other person I'm with, theirs looks a lot better than mine. Not like I picked the wrong menu item, but like a big thing, I was wrong. And, you know, that had negative, you know, that has negative consequences in other people's lives. That's not easy to admit. Now, right or wrong or whatever with, actually, that's one book. I actually didn't read that book. But anyway, right or wrong, whatever, and not here to say. <laughs> but, but, um, you know, that's, a, that's a, a terrible place to be in. When you sit there and you go, well, I might have told a whole lot of people, you know, 1.2 million copies, and how many times those get handed around to other people, told a whole lot of people what I think may have been the wrong thing to tell those people. That's a pretty heavy thing. You know, Jesus doesn't have that concern. Because he is speaking truth and love with authority. He doesn't have this concern. And we shouldn't have that concern when we're actually speaking the words of Jesus. That's one of the reasons we go book by book, you know, section, you know, section by section, trying our best to say this is what Jesus actually said or this is what God actually says. And let's try to apply that to our lives as opposed to, you know, it's not as, as cute or fancy or novel because we're not like, hey, you know what? In our church, we got some things that nobody's ever heard about. I mean, we got some brand new stuff that nobody's nobody and nobody has what we have. Nobody else has what we have. We can't do that. We've got the Word of God that's been around for a long time, and there's not there isn't anything new in it. There isn't anything novel or like. And we're going to you know, just completely have our minds blown because nobody has ever seen this before. You know, but what that is usually is faults and arrogance. We were like, I've got something nobody's ever seen. This is brand spanking new. Usually it's faults and arrogant. We have the tested, proven, true. Word of God, that we know if we obey consistently, produces results in our lives and in the lives of other people. Tried, tested, true. Now, the, the reality is that it's not that anything in the Word of God needs to change. But our approach, sometimes that needs to change. Our seriousness as we approach it and as we seek to apply it in our lives, that often needs to change. In the Sermon on the Mount, there's not anything that I need to go back and say, Jesus, you should have said it this other way. Not at all. But there are things that say, well, Chet, you should apply it this other way. To apply it this other way. Because you haven't applied it consistently and properly. 
you know, that's where it would come down to. Jesus doesn't need to change. The word doesn't need to change. You and I, we still have changing to do. And until you're fully like Jesus, you still have changing to do. You still have growing to do. I still have, I have a lot of room to still grow in my walk with the Lord. Praise God, because, you know, that shows, you know, he is the ultimate. There's still something to strive towards more and more. And the reality of it is that those who are closer to Jesus, you know, nobody really close to Jesus, as we view it, views themselves as having obtained. They still see themselves as having a lot of room to still grow. I'm not concerned about the people who, who obviously love Jesus and say, I've still got a lot of room to grow. We're concerned about people who aren't taking Jesus seriously, but yet think that they're mature or ready. Nothing wrong with a lot of room to grow. But again, as we begin chapter 8, we need to remember the authority of of Jesus. This is key. Because as Matthew writes, he is not trying to give you a strict chronology of events. He is telling a story. Remember John um, said, you know, that Jesus did many other things um, that are not written in this book. That he's talking about his gospel. Okay? He talked about all things that Jesus did that you'd, you know, what room you would have to sort of have to be able to put all that down. So, you know, the, the authors of the gospel are selective in the parts of the story that they're telling. Okay? And Matthew is particularly writing according to his themes. His theme of Jesus being a servant, his theme of Jesus being a king, and those going together. Um... And so when he puts this story here, these next stories here, let's listen to this and think of, keep that in mind as, as we read. Um, in chapter 8, verse 1, When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that, that you tell no one, but go your way. Show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. All right, let's stop there for a second. So Jesus comes off the mountain. Lots of people are now following him. Multitudes and multitudes of people. You know, there are multitudes of people who heard that message. And now they're, you know, they're going to be sharing that. More people are going to be coming along. And then there's this you know, person with leprosy who, again, at this time, it's an incurable disease. It ostracizes you from the community because you can't, it's a contagious, very contagious thing that you can't have spreading. You know, and it seems harsh, man. These people have to go and be you know, by themselves, or they have to do all these things. And, and you know, if, if for some way they, they don't have, you know, they're healed, they don't have less leprosy anymore, they have to go through all these procedures to make extra, extra sure for the people because it is such a terrible, terrible, contagious disease. 
the authority and power of Jesus, he has, you know, notice how many ways that throughout the scriptures, Jesus has ways to heal people. And with this leper, this one who is unclean, this one, if you touch, you make yourself ceremonially unclean and have to go through all these cleansing rituals in order to then, again, participate, to show that you're not infected, and to participate back in the community and back, you know, among especially the religious, you know, holy things. And Jesus could have spoken the word, as he does in other cases. And yet he shows his power, his authority, by touching the leper. He touches him. You know, it's one of those things that seems like a little detail. You can just read over. It's not just a little detail. Jesus touches him. He's willing to be intimately involved with this other individual who is Again, ceremonially unclean, with an infectious disease, ostracized. That people, I mean, these people would have to say that they were a leper as they came through anywhere so that people would spread away from them. They would cry it out as they walked through. And then Jesus says to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest. And after the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Again, that's a testimony to, who the, again, the religious leaders. Showing them that the, Jesus is the Messiah. It's another testimony. It's another proof for them. Now Luke tells us um, in chapter 5 that that word there does spread. It doesn't stay, you know, just in that individual, you know, the, as the, especially as the as he presents himself and other people see that and then word goes, you know, from there. And then we come to verse 5, read verses 5 through 13. It says, Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I pray to this one go, and he comes, and then another come, and he comes, and to my servant do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel." And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into utter darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, go your way. And as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Okay. So again, as... Jesus is setting up this, sorry, as Matthew is setting up this, this narrative concerning Jesus, and he's you know, being consistent in his themes and, and what he's you know, trying to communicate. What's again the key thing that Jesus is trying to communicate, that Matthew is trying to communicate about Jesus in this section? Again, it goes back to the authority of Jesus. 
That's what's being hammered home in this section of, of Matthew. The authority of Jesus. And he uses this, this um, about the centurion's paralyzed servant to illustrate the point. To illustrate the point. Now, what we do need to take a moment and recognize is that Luke also tells the story about the centurion and the centurion's servant, Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. So, now, in that account, Jesus and the centurion are not face-to-face. The centurion doesn't go directly to Jesus. He is using um, you know, other Jewish people as an intermediary to go on his behalf and speak to Jesus for him. Okay, Now, so you may read these two chapters and say, well, there seems to be a difference there. You know, what really, what really happened? Um, so Luke 7 is going to give you a, a, more of the detail on that part of it, where it is an intermediary that is going in between. Um, Matthew is, is more giving you a summary of what happened. Okay, he's giving you the summary. Luke's giving you the details about that part of the story. And that's okay. Um, it's, again, the author's point, um, Matthew's point here, is not to give you every detail about what happened, but to give you his theme, the authority of Jesus. He doesn't say anything that isn't true, you know, because his, his view is, you know, when, when the centurion comes, you know, he's coming through these others. Um, it's not a false statement it's just not as detailed as Luke's account, okay? Um, and so you're going to have that sometimes, you know, in the Gospels. It's not that they're sitting there and disagreeing. If you have Matthew and Luke in the room and Luke says, you know, and remember that the centurion used the intermediaries to speak to Jesus, Matthew's going to be like, no, he didn't. He did it face to face. That conversation wouldn't happen. They go, oh, yes, of course, that's the way it was. Um, but he just didn't feel it necessary to include that detail. Okay? Um, and then, so that's how that works. So you can read those two uh, parallel um, and look at that. But even more so, as you look at Luke's, how much more does the centurion's faith um, in the power of Jesus that you know, he can ask these others to ask on his behalf as he's asking on behalf of his servant? Like, I mean, you know, you pretty powerful again um, you know and, and we can't say exactly why Matthew didn't include that detail but he didn't deem it necessary for his theme and so Jesus did say in both accounts that he would be willing to come and to heal this servant and in both accounts the centurion says that that is not necessary I'm not worried that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. And the centurion understands authority and chains of command. He has people under him that he has authority, you know, to say do this and do that. And there will be pretty bad repercussions if that individual doesn't do it in the you know, organization of the Roman army. So he understands and he believes that Jesus has the authority over sickness. 
over issues related to health. He believes that Jesus has authority. We're not 100% certain whether he had, the centurion had you know, heard Jesus' teaching in person, had seen anyone healed you know, in person. Certainly, he's at least heard of it. He believes it to be true, that it's credible. He believes that Jesus has the authority to heal his paralyzed and tormented servant. It also shows you some of the heart that this centurion, though he's risen to a position of, of authority and of power um, in, the, in, his, in the Roman military, you know, he, he doesn't have an attitude that probably a lot would have of, well, I can just go get another servant. It's not that big a deal. He obviously has some sort of personal care uh, that he's willing to go on the behalf of uh, for, for his servant to be healed. Now, Jesus, imagine this, again, in the context of a largely Jewish audience with an occupied land by the Roman oppressors, that Jesus is setting himself up to be the Messiah, you know, to be the Savior and King, and yet to his largely Jewish audience, says, Surely I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. You talk about a powerful word. Yes, it, it, it does two things at the same time. It highlights the faith of the satyrian, and it also shows the unbelief of the Israelites, of the Hebrew people at this time. And then he says... Many will come from east and west to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom. Now again, these are you know, people who were are, who are born into an environment where they have the truth of the prophets. You know, they're in the, the, the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They have every advantage to know God. And Jesus says they're going to be cast out. Not in total, not all of, but obviously a significant enough amount to say that the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into utter darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, that's not a soft message. Then Jesus said to the satyrian, go your way as you have believed, so let it be done for you. In both cases, the servant was healed, both accounts of Matthew and Luke. The servant was healed that same hour. The power of Jesus over everything. Uh, We need to remember that. We need to remember it and to take it in and to, to have it become part of who we are, that our Savior and King has authority. Our Savior and King has power. Now, how does that affect how we pray? And what's interesting, as I think about this, um, you know, and some other, you know, like real life, like today situations where people are in desperate 
need or desperate situations. Like, how do we, how do we apply what we read here? There's a couple of things. Um, with the leper, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. It's not saying that Jesus has to, or that it's his will to, in every situation. I think that leper has a very proper way that we approach Jesus. Lord, if you are willing, you can do this. The faith, I think so many times when it comes to faith, when it comes to even those sort of situations, when it comes to healing, or you know, somebody is sick, or somebody has a disease, or what, somebody's been in an accident, whatever it is, that we think that the prayer of faith is, Lord, that you will. But I think that we see here, both in the leper and the centurion, the prayer of faith is, Lord, I know that you can. I know that you can. See, because the will is to say that then we know the plan of God. If we say, Jesus, you will do X, Y, or Z, then we say, we know your, your plan and we are dictating what you, with all authority, are going to go and do. Because we've told you to. That doesn't seem right as you sit there and think about it. By saying, Lord, I believe, you know, if you are willing, you are willing, you can do X, Y, and Z. You have the power and authority to do it, and I do not doubt your power and authority to do it. Hopefully that helps your prayer life. Yeah, and, because I think what happens to a lot of people is say, Lord, I believe that you will, but in reality, that's, that ends up, they're asking for something that's contrary to the will of God for reasons unbeknownst to us. It's not the will of God to intervene in a particular situation. But we're saying it is, and then God doesn't, and then what follows from that? Disillusionment, disappointment, God isn't real. Because if he was real, then he would have done what I told him to do. But the problem there is, the person has set themselves with the authority above God to tell God what to do. We don't have that authority. We don't have that power. We say, Lord, I know that you have all authority and all power and that you can and that my request is that you do this, please. For your glory and for your honor. Will you do this? And if the result of that is no, then we have to humbly you know, take the position of, Lord, I trust and I believe that you properly used your authority in that time and for reasons beyond my ability to comprehend. We didn't see the result that we wanted, and now our hearts are broken and we need your comfort. You see how that works? It's, it's important, our approach. That we put ourselves below God in our understanding and in our asking. That he has the authority. We don't put ourselves above where God then exists to grant our desires. And I think that that's really important, especially in our day and time, 
because if we're honest about it, our what we get pushed to a lot of times is a faith that isn't centered on God. It's a faith that is centered on ourselves and our own personal lives. That's what happens a lot of times. We, have, we end up with a faith that is centered around us where God needs to revolve around us. Everything else needs to revolve around us. And what our will, our desire is for our own good. And we wouldn't be so bold as to say that because we know that that's heretical. Like, that's a heretical, almost blasphemous thing to come out of our mouths. But I think that that's how we, oftentimes we live. And that's oftentimes how we pray. And that's oftentimes how we proceed through life. That we put ourselves at the center and we ask God and everything else to revolve around us. And so what we need to work on is to practically applying, God, you have all authority and power. Now, I'm not going to go much further, but I just want to go through verse 15. So in in verse 14, it says, Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and served them. Like, okay, why are, we, why are we in here? So, after all this within you know, these events, Jesus had come into Peter's house. He saw Peter's wife's mother lying sick with a fever. Say Peter's wife's mother ten times real fast. Uh, so he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And then this next part, and she arose and served them. So this was obviously a complete healing, where a fever had left her. She wasn't just like, well, I feel a bit better, my fever's gone. But she's got her full strength back. So, you know, it's cool when Jesus heals, you know, when it's a miraculous healing. Like, the, paral- you know, the, leper, the leper doesn't have, like, it's not like 95% of his leprosy is gone. No, it's all gone. The paralyzed man isn't paralyzed anymore. Now Peter's mother-in-law isn't just a little bit better. She's all the way better. Miraculous healing. And it has to be set up that way in the scriptures. It can't, you, there can't be a place for somebody to say... Well, you know, it was just the natural immune system and they took the right herbs and, you know, everything else. They had the right essential oils <laughs> or antibiotic or whatever else you want to do. But, no, this was a miraculous healing. Um, and then she rose and served them. What I would want to contend with us this morning, or just encourage us with this morning, is that throughout the scriptures, when somebody, when somebody meets Jesus, they're freed from their demon possession, or they're freed from their slavery to sin, or they're freed from some you know, terrible sickness. Their response you know, is, 
is joy. Um, Their response is to praise God. And their response is to serve others. You know, Peter's mother-in-law doesn't make herself the center of things. Even after she's been healed by Jesus, she doesn't go and say, well, now let's have a, a party for me because of what of all this. But no, she immediately gets up and she starts serving Jesus and those with him. And so in our lives, when you've been, you know, when we were distant from God, when God in his in his great love sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and to pay our price. When one day we realize the realities of I'm a sinner. I don't deserve anything good from God. I actually just deserve his judgment. But yet you understood you have a through the power of the Holy Spirit you have a moment of clarity where you realize how much God loves you. And he got on the news and said, Jesus, forgive me. You know, I believe in you. I trust you. What? That you have the authority. Now, even if you didn't fully grasp all of it, certainly you do now. The authority that Jesus had. You know, as he paid for your sins and the authority he has, the authority God has for your sins to be on the account of Jesus and not on your own account. And so our response to that has to be, Lord, how do I praise you? How do I give you glory? And how do I serve others? How do I serve? And so as we've talked this morning about, you know, that tendency, the religious tendency and, and it's even more so in a culture, but you know, whether it's a communal culture or an individualistic culture, you still have some of the same problems. In a communal culture, communal culture you know, everything revolves around the community, the, the collective whole, right? But even then, you could still end up with this problem where God you know, exists for the, just for the good of the collective, to serve the collective. Now, in the individualistic culture, we live in one of those, if you haven't been aware. Um, <laughs> we, live, we live in one of those, if you, know, if you haven't checked your own heart recently. Individualistic culture, where then it's, you know, we're in the center, and God revolves around, and everybody else revolves around. Which is really this weird thing, because you have, you know, all of these little individualistic dots that where God is supposed to revolve around, and everybody else is revolve around, and then things collide, because, wait... You're supposed to be, you know, on the on the orbit of my life, but you view it as you're. I'm supposed to be on the orbit of your life, and and now we collide. We've got problems. But how much better when we, when more and more of us, not just understand it theoretically, but strive to live it out, uh, exist. To worship God, to love my neighbor as myself. I exist to love God and love my neighbor, and therefore, you know, I orbit around the needs, not the needs, but I orbit around the authority of God. I orbit around the love and holiness of God, 
and I orbit around others to serve them. And as John the Baptist said, you know, he must incre- you know, I must decrease that he may increase. And how much more and more of a truth that is into our social cultures where it does you know, tend to be about us and about what we, what we want. And so how do we strive to be like this hero of the faith, Peter's mother-in-law, who was healed, who rose up, and served? She was healed, she rose up, and she served. And so how do we strive for that? And so our challenge, you know, this morning, as we come and we take the bread and the cup and we say, Jesus, we really do revolve around you and around your authority. And therefore, I need you to forgive me of my sins. And, and you know, not in, you know, most in here, it's we've already said, Jesus, forgive me in the big sense. But in that the, the cleansing of our feet, as Jesus talks about with his disciples, that he washes their feet, that, Lord, my feet have gotten dirty in this world. I need you to wash my feet. And I need you to renew my mind. I need you to change how I'm thinking about things for your glory and for your honor. And I need you to help me to have you at the center, Jesus, and that I would seek in my life to serve others. And show me how I can do that this week, like in a practical ways, not just theoretical, like, yes, but practically, how do I go about being the hands and feet of Jesus this week in Athens, Georgia, in our community, and in the world, since, you know, we live in this globalized, crazy thing where we get to communicate just like that all over the place. How do we serve? How do we help? And so may Jesus give us his strength and his power and renew us in that this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you and we we ask um, For you to give us clarity in our, our hearts and our minds, that you would help us to see things as you as you see them. God, we pray that you would help us, Father, to have you and your Son, the Holy Spirit, at the center of our lives, at the center of this church. So that individually and collectively we have that same orbit that you are the center of all things, dear God. Help us to serve uh, this week. Help us to serve one another. Help us to serve in our city and in this world. And Lord, you know we all have many things um, on our hearts people who are dear to us, who are sick, and situations that seem just daunting, God. 
And so we pray um, that, that you would help us and we acknowledge, we acknowledge God that you have the authority, that Jesus, you have the power to heal anyone you want to heal, to change any situation you want to change. So we believe that you can, and we ask our request to you, but even as you prayed in the garden, dear Jesus, nevertheless, not, not our will be done, but, but yours. So we submit ourselves to you, to your plan. In your name, Jesus, we ask it.